Tom convince his heart. Tom thought long and hard about going to the continent again. He felt a great excitement in his belly at the very prospect. No, he thought, not going to the continent, flying to the continent. All thoughts of Jacqueline vanished from his mind for the next two days, except for the occasional burst of self-congratulation about having made the right decision. He made long lists of things he needed and planned possible routes determining how and when to stop and pick up fuel and more money. The current crop of pilots were due to graduate in four weeks. When Tom entered the classroom, he was greatly surprised and slightly alarmed to see Jacqueline sitting in her usual seat. His eyes raked over her to see if she had dressed up or down to impress or frighten him. She returned his gaze without guile. He felt the force of her will and suddenly remembered that she was the kind of woman who could sit in a class of men without fear. After the class, she remained sitting while the others filed out. He felt sad suddenly after everyone had left and she was alone staring at him, her books stacked neatly in front of her. I don't mean to alarm you, Tom, but I don't accept your reasons. Her voice was even. Tom nodded slowly. I don't hand myself over to men. I'm not a party favor or a conquest. She smiled. And if I felt that even a little, I would curse myself and never speak up. But I wasn't a conquest, was I? Tom shook his head. No, I was much more than that. I was the possibility of love. Not that quick, not that way. We were both greedy, but the possibility. If I didn't think that, said Tom, I wouldn't have said what I said. Her lips pursed so tight it looked painful. Sorry, said Tom, I don't want to be cryptic. A friend of mine had her bloke sleep with another woman, and he tried to convince her that he did it out of love for her. Don't be that bloke. All right. So you have some dark secret, which is very modern, very rakish, very foreign legion. All right. We can't be close if you don't spill your secret. Just tell me this. Is it an important secret? Yes. Is it about you? No. Your family? Tom paused. No. Some hesitation. So something about your family? It's very tangential. So not a useful clue. Is it about a woman? No. A man? No. Don't smile. This is not supposed to be enjoyable. A child? No. Short pause. Children may or may not be involved. So not about you, your family, men, women, or children. My God, you're in love with a camel. He smiled. Don't smile, I said. Don't make jokes then. I don't know what is worse, you smiling or me making jokes. Don't answer. Men never know when to hold their tongue. Why are you smiling? You take my course for six weeks and only flirt with me after we sleep together. You are either quite confident or quite mad. He suddenly grew serious. You shouldn't flirt. I'm going away. Her face fell somewhat. You're... Did you know this before we slept together? No. So you just found out? Her voice was openly skeptical. Right afterwards? Yes. That's not a very good story. I know. That's why you should believe me. Oh, she wriggled out from behind the narrow desk, standing tall and brushing her dark hair back from her forehead. That you know it's believable because it's not believable. Why would you want to torture me? I don't. 
I'm sorry. And that tone, that, that's even more believable. So tender. Why, Tom? Just tell me why. He shook his head slowly. It was like watching a statue disagree. A tear ran from her eye. And you know that feeling when you've met someone who you just know would be perfect for you? I don't know if you know it, but I know it, and I hate it. You're very cruel. Tom sniffed as well. Oh, don't cry, goddammit, cried Jacqueline, turning to him. If you're not going to be picked up by the paddy wagon in ten minutes for a life of hard labor, you have no right to cry. You are the most exquisite sadist alive. He lowered his head. Say nothing, say nothing. It was dismal, gruesome. The more he told her he cared, the more she would hate him. The more he spoke of his indifference, the more she would hate him. But, he thought, what if we do nothing about the Night of the Long Knives, about these political murders in Germany? But even as the thoughts surfaced, he felt his heart sinking into the wet concrete of colossal indifference. As if we would do something, anything, other than promise to monitor the situation and regret Herr Hitler's excesses. Would we really invade because he bumped off some fellow Nazis? Tom shook his head with a shudder. He knew Reginald's voice when he heard it. He glanced up at Jacqueline. I'm going to the continent for some time, he said. I care for you greatly. If I learn certain things on the continent, I shall get in touch when I return. Of course, you don't have to wait for me. It would be quite mad. You were a very attractive woman. She started to speak, but he held up his hand. That's all I can offer you. I, I do care greatly, but I have no wish to torture you with paradoxes or contradictions. Please, please leave. Jacqueline leaned forward onto his desk. Her hair and face descended upon him like the great visage of a falling angel. She fell closer and closer, then tilted his chin and kissed him lightly on the lips. Farewell, then, she said. He felt one more teardrop fall on his upper lip, the salt spreading rapidly. Then she turned and left the shack. Hello, shouted Tom, jerking the telephone away from his ear as a burst of static leapt out. Hello? I'll see if he's here, said a voice so thickly accented that it took Tom's brain a moment to translate. Hello? asked another voice. Hart? Yes, it's Tom. Tom, is everything all right? You speak French, right? Um, yes. I need you to come with me on a trip. A trip? What, what kind of trip? I, ah, oh, damn, I wish I had time for a letter. What? Can you come to London tomorrow? Tomorrow? Why? I need you for something. Will it be for long? Yes. What? Yes. How long? A long time. Tom, what are you talking about? I need you. Come tomorrow. And if you don't want to stay, you can go back. Are you all right? Yes. Because I'm budgeting, you know, for my doctorate. Can you come here? I wish I could. Please, heart. Crackle. All right, Tom. This is your one big favor. Thanks, heart. Thanks ever so much. The next day at Euston train station, heart was a little irritable. This was an unusual state for him to be in. Well, not unusual in and of itself, but unusual for Tom to see it. Acolytes always turned their best faces towards their gods. Hello, Tom, 
said Hart, wrestling with an enormous trunk. Give me a hand, then. Tom helped him drag it off the train. Then they picked up a strap at either end and began walking along the platform towards the exit. Thanks very much, Hart. All right. Everyone gets one barmy request. So tell me what the hell is going on. No, don't. Let's sit down and have a cup of tea. There was a horde of footballers on the train and my brain is still ringing. Dumb equals loud. Dumb equals loud. Tom smiled. They walked through the exit and found a little tea shop up the street. After sitting and being served by a very pretty waitress, Hart took a deep breath, massaging a thin shoulder. So, flyboy, I am going on a flying tour of the continent. Crap, I am. Fine. Crap that you need me for that. I'm starting off in France. Oh, no, scowled Hart. What? Oh, no, you didn't drag me down here so I could order brioche for you. No, no. Have you been following the news? In a time machine sort of way, the papers of my village are always two weeks late. Hitler has purged the Nazi party. Hundreds of people were murdered last week. All right, so you're going to invade from France and you need me to cover you. Tom smiled despite himself. No. Did you ever meet my Uncle Gunther? No. Well, he's asked me to go. To Europe. He works for Winston Churchill. Hart's face went entirely goggle-eyed. What? What? Shh! Kiggled Tom, glancing around. You're making me laugh. Well, really? You're flying to Europe to spy for Churchill? Hart's face turned somber all of a sudden. Actually, I can't see that. The Oxford debate? If this Gunther fellow knows Churchill? How long will he be gone? Indefinite. So, you want me to come for the French portion? I do. Well. Hart settled back in his chair, his tea untouched. I'm flattered. Tom smiled. Good. I have to be back in September. Mm, all right. Wait a moment. What was that mm, all about? You want me to chuck school and go wandering around the continent like some flying gypsy? What do you think of war? Don't like it. Do you think there will be a war? What I think, said Hart without pausing to think, is that there is nothing that you and I can do to affect the outcome. That... All right. What about now? Now that I've told you about this opportunity. Churchill is an independent, an entertaining distraction from the real business of governing, a gadfly, not even worth swatting. So you think that there's nothing to be done? Oh, Tom, said Hart with genuine sympathy. What? I hate to say this. I don't... What? Well... It's going to give you some kind of structure, I guess, this European business, but if you had a career... Tom smiled sadly. Yes? asked Hart. There will be a war. Shouldn't you have long fingernails, a dirty beard, and that phrase scribbled on a sign? Why did you let me debate Reginald? I never liked that toffee nose. What? demanded Tom incredulously. That was it? And you wanted it. You know I can't say no to you, Tom. Not proud of it. Hart shrugged. Maybe I am. Anyway, I'll go with you to France for up to ten days, if your airplane can take off with my trunk in the back. That's it. That's all. Surprise me with a request. I'll always say yes, so I'm telling you this in advance. Tom nodded slowly. You have a passport? Yes. Tom closed his eyes briefly. Thanks, Hart. 
for everything. You are a great, great friend. Yes, sappy sot, said Hart, staring at his tea, his eyes dancing. Tom and Hart in Paris They flew to Paris the next morning, February 6th, 1934. The flight took just over an hour. Hart was excited beyond words. His irritation of the day before had vanished. He asked hundreds of questions about the airplane, the controls, navigation, fuel consumption, and how long it would take to become a pilot. After landing, they took a taxi into Paris. I was here in January of 30, said Hart, his eyes darting around the windows as the city rose before them. Foreign exchange program. I definitely got the better of that deal. My God, what a place! I can't believe you chose to learn German. I knew it as a child, said Tom. Gunther taught me. Oh, that's one devoted uncle. Life's too damn short to learn German. Separate propositions, dare dee das, they've got to be kidding. <gasps> this is quite fantastic, Tom. This place completely escaped the Depression. When I left, <laughs> there were a grand total of 812 people out of work. Paris is a city of light, the cultural center of the world, the most beautiful human landscape anywhere. Everyone's busy, everything is cheap, more bookstores that you can count, theater, museums, galleries, cabarets. I am, in a word, very happy to be back and flown here too. Hart laughed. I get flown to the outskirts, then driven into the city. Ah, perhaps someone in Paris will pee for me too. Don't the governments go in and out like fashion? Sure, sure, but what do you expect? You have a giddy land of fierce individualists. But though the politicians stumble and, yea, though they fall, they've stabilized the franc and even had a budget excess of, what, 19 billion francs? Something ludicrous. No, no, my cynical friend, my stuck-in-the-bog Anglo-Saxon warhorse, this glittering cathedral is a heaven where war can come no more. Tom smiled. You are full of flights of fancy today. Hart turned from the view and grinned at him. But isn't this whole trip a flight of fancy? However, Hart's perpetual grin began to fall as they entered the outskirts of the city. Was this the way I came in last time? he murmured. Outside the window, the streets were dirty. Young men marched in coloured shirts, their jackboots echoing on the grimy pavements. Their taxicab passed two burning automobiles. On one corner, both Tom and Hart watched as a group of black-shirted hooligans overturned a kiosk selling newspapers. An old man struggled free as one of the men poured some liquid petrol on the collapsed kiosk as another struggled to light a match. Hart sank back into his seat. A shiver passed through him and he tightened his light jacket across his chest. What the fuck? he murmured. Then his eyes narrowed and he sat forward. Tom listened as Hart and the cab driver exchanged a rapid conversation in French. He tried to follow it, but it was too hard. He caught only the ominous words. Well, he asked after Hart sent back into his seat. Oh, one moment, he muttered. That's something to do with. There's the left wing, which is terrified of fascism, and the fascists, of course, who fear communism, but where the hell did they come from? All right, there was the Action Francais. Sorry, Tom, they were a royalist group which advocated the destruction of the Third Republic, but no one took them seriously. When you've got opera, who needs the monarchy? So, what's going on? Our driver says that <laughs> no one wants democracy anymore. Tom put his hand to his mouth. Jesus fucking Christ. What? 
It's going to be only us, one fucking island against the whole of Europe. Hold on, hold on. They can't be that powerful yet. They just sprang up in the last few years, the fascists and the communists. The depression finally hit France. He says that since the summer of 31, things have been bad. He used to be a banker. Excuse me. Hart asked more questions of the driver, then turned back to Tom. So the Credit Bank in Vienna crashed in late 31. Then there was financial panic in Germany, and then England went off the gold standard, which devalued the pound by 40%. Two years ago, stocks crashed on the Boris, their stock exchange. But our driver says that unemployment is not so bad. Hart checked the number with the driver, then said, Not more than half a million. Nothing like England, Germany, or the U.S., but it's the worst they've had in a hundred years. So now they feel... Since the U.S. also went off the gold standard in 1933... Wait, said Tom heavily, holding up his hand. What does that mean? What is the gold standard? Ah, well, quickly. Originally, a pound note could be exchanged for gold at any British bank. So every pound note that the British government printed had to be backed by an equivalent amount of gold. It meant that paper currency always had some tangible value behind it. Stopped governments accumulating big debts and then paying them by running the printing presses at the mint. So, why go off it? Ah, the Depression, said Hart, his thoughts clearly elsewhere. Governments wanted more money to pay the unemployed to try and stimulate the economy. Public works. But they didn't have the gold, so they just said, fuck the gold, we're going with just paper. So everyone's currency fell. Here, though, in the mid-twenties, the franc plummeted, wiped out everyone's savings. So now... No French government wants to touch the gold standard. So the price out of foreign markets. British paper just can't buy much French gold, so they have to deflate the franc. Bad for business. What? What are you thinking? Hart's face was pained. Well, I just can't figure out why they turn against democracy. England and the US, we just threw out our governments. We didn't throw out government itself. Why would France go the German-Italian route? Not that they have yet, but... This is one of the central pillars of democracy. Every word falling from Hart's lips buried Tom's hopes like a sapling under a landslide of bricks. The brief flare of optimism that had brightened his hopes a few weeks ago when he thought that the Nazi slaughter might wake the world burned itself out in that taxicab speeding through Paris and left nothing but darkness in its final hiss. Hart turned back from another rapid conversation with the driver. Night was falling and the shadows from the streetlights moved over Hart's thin, pale face. All right, it goes back a bit further than I thought, he said. In 26, when the franc collapsed and took all the savings of the middle class with it, one Ernest Mercier founded the Retassement Francais, uh, French resurgence, I guess. He said his basic message was that a parliament of politicians was a ridiculous way to run a complex post-war world. He wanted a parliament of specialists, Hart checked a word with the driver, uh, technicians, who would know how capitalism worked and run it properly. This bloke is stinking rich. He spent millions publicizing this idea. It's sort of like Mussolini's corporate state, but it's all the same bloody mess. Real entrepreneurs don't do too well on their old Il Duce. This lot is getting pretty punchy. They're making speeches about marching on the Chamber of Deputies and using whips to clear them out. So, why doesn't the government shut them down? Asked Tom, feeling another layer of icy fear settle over his heart so that he could barely see it. Hart asked the driver, who replied with great scorn. 
Hart turned back to Tom. Huh, all right. Apparently, the government is not too concerned with Monsieur Marcier, because there are the militant leagues, the ones rioting in the streets every day. Shit, shit, shit! The thought struck Tom at that moment, and he thought he saw it strike Hart as well. That for Hart to return to England to work on a PhD whose completion was still several years hence would be fiddling while Rome burned. They both knew that the violin had not, in fact, been invented until many hundreds of years after the burning of Rome, but habits of language were hard to shake. Hart shivered again, then ploughed on. The royalists are doing well. They have street gangs called Camelotera. They tried storming the Chamber of Deputies, but the police have kept them at bay. There's been bloodshed, of course, which always makes things worse. What? He turned to the driver, talked for a few minutes, then turned back to Tom. Well, this is just rumour, but apparently some people think that the Comte de Paris, the heir of the pretender to the throne, is agitating for Brussels, as if anyone would accept the restored Orléans monarchy. There's also a group of street brawlers called the Jeunesse Patriotes, mostly university students. There's 90,000 of them, 6,000 in Paris. They're the ones in groups of 50 with blue raincoats and berets. And also a group called the Solidarité Française, run by a perfumer, if I got that right. They're in blue shirts, black berets, and jacques boots. They say, France for the French. They're run by a major Renault, who claims 180,000, with 80,000 in Paris. Probably only a fifth of that, our driver believes, but I still think that we should just turn around and go home. Can't, murmured Tom, his eyes vacantly distant. What, because of Winston? Hell, let's just say that we came, it was bad and left. We have to go on. You didn't like Germany, right? God, no. Well, our driver has kindly informed me that there are over 5,000 Nazis in Paris, well-armed, the best street fighters in the biz, everyone parts before them. And there are also the French veterans. What have they got to do with anything? Uh, they were on fixed pensions. They've been wiped out, no jobs. They've threatened to throw their fight into the streets if nothing is done. And they could walk all over the Third Republic. No officer or policeman would dare fire on them. As war veterans, they are revered by all Frenchmen. If they lose patience even a little, the Republic will fall in hours. Fuck me! cried Tom. The driver glanced back, startled. Tom repeatedly thumped the seat between himself and Hart. It was stupid and immature, but somehow essential. Fuck it all! He moaned. He gripped his hands in front of him and squeezed his chest muscles. Oh, God damn it all! I'm throwing myself at the same driver! Shut up, Tom! said Hart, obviously anxious. Nothing has happened for certain yet. Nothing can be done. Everything is falling apart. The center cannot hold. Hart looked at Tom, then leaned forward to their driver and asked a rapid question. All right, he said, sitting back. Tom was hunched over, his hands hanging between his knees. All right, repeated Hart. There is, in fact, a bar at our hotel. Let's run something up on Mr. Churchill's account. The bar was unbelievably crowded, and Tom expected French to flow fluidly into his ears. Not because he had learned it, but because he spoke German, and there was something Germanic in the feverish eyes of the assembled patrons. They 
spilled their drinks, snatches of songs droned through the smoky air. Everyone seemed to smell. The occasional scent of sweet perfume made the underlying acridity of unwashed flesh even more ghastly. They had no luck making their way through the crowd. Tom pushed, but no one moved. Hart's face was sweaty. "'God damn it!' he hissed, thrusting against a young man. The man turned to them. He had a long nose and blue eyes. "'Englanders!' he cried. "'Sweet Jesus, but it's good to hear some old Anglo-Saxon English spoken in this hellhole!' Hart's eyes widened. "'Hellhole!' he said. "'This is Paris!' "'This was Paris!' the young man replied, without offense. He thrust a cigarette into his mouth and extended his hand. "'I'm William!' "'Hart?' said Hart. "'This is my friend Tom.' William leaned in. I'm a reporter from the Chicago Tribune, he said, shaking Tom's hand. What are you doing here? We've come, said Tom, to see what's going on in France. We're working with the Times. Hart shot Tom a strange, quizzical look. William laughed harshly. Well, that's mighty fine of you. So what is going on? What, you want me to do your reporting for you? What are you, 12 years old? He laughed again. Kidding, I'm kidding. Forget getting a drink here. Come to my room. They pushed themselves out of the bar and went upstairs. In his room, William poured them some scotch. Their hotel was the Crillon, and it overlooked the Place de la Concorde. The roar from the crowd outside waxed and waned like sandy thunder. After handing them their glasses, William turned and closed the window. It helped, but not much. You boys just arrive? Tom frowned. William was in his late twenties, but spoke as if he were much older. It felt like an affectation. Today, said Tom. So now the Times gets interested in France. It's about time. What's your angle? Just to get a feel for the place. Well, you are lucky bastards for coming today. Today the shit has really hit the fan. William paused to take a long drink from his glass. He drained it in one gulp, then poured another. Why not just drink from the bottle? Thought Tom, taking a sip. William threw himself into an armchair, rubbing his face. Tom watched him, wondering if the American reporter didn't strive a little too hard to achieve the appearance of the world-weary reporter. "'Corruption,' said William, draining his glass again. "'Corruption is going to take down the Third Republic, possibly tonight.' He grinned sadly. "'I hope you're well-rested.' "'What do you mean?' asked Hart. "'Have you heard of the name Stavisky?' Both young men shook their heads. The crowd roared outside. "'He's a Russian Jew, a swindler.' who's been floating municipal bonds, cashing them in, and skipping out when they come due. What? asked Tom, hard as the economics expert. Well, Stavisky has friends in high places. They give him the power to sell municipal bonds. City-issued pieces of paper that pay you 105 francs next year for 100 francs today. He then sells them to banks for 90 francs. Then when the bonds come due, it's found out that the city cannot pay them. All hell breaks loose. Christmas, last year, it's found out that 239 million francs worth of bonds issued by the city of Bayonne are worthless. Citizens are up in arms. A confederate of Stavisky confesses to helping him with the swindle. Ah, but the trail does not end there. The mayor deputy of Bayonne is caught. So are various other politicians and the editors of two large Parisian newspapers. Then a prominent member of the cabinet is found with his hands in the Stavisky till. A bad business, said Tom. But one event... William chortled. Oh, no, not one. This Davisky fellow got convicted in 1927. His trial has been postponed 19 times. He's been walking free since then. And wouldn't you know, 
the man responsible for postponing his trials for seven years, the head of the Paris Parquet, is Chief Prosecutor Georges Pressard, who just happens to be the brother-in-law of Camille Chauton, a cabinet minister of long standing. And, since last November, premier. Stavisky vanishes after Christmas, and it's mighty perplexing, said William, his eyes mock-wide. But the police just can't find him. The population starts to go quite mad. Rumor has it that the Surette has given Stavisky a passport so he can flee France and keep all his connections secret. But he doesn't. Finally, the police catch him on January the 8th at the winter resort of Chamois. But it's very sad. Stavisky shoots himself, they say, just as they're breaking into his room. But the thing is, said William, leaning forward, he's still alive, lying in a pool of blood for over an hour before they call for help. Sad to say, he didn't make it. Good heavens, said Tom. And although I have been here for less than a year, I have learned one thing about the average Frenchman. You can steal his money and make love to his wife, but woe to you if you happen to insult his intelligence. But surely that would just be a vote of non-confidence in the government, said Tom. Hart shook his head. Ah, that wouldn't really work. Since June of 32, there have been six French governments, each lasting about three months before being overturned. Ah, said Tom. There was another throaty roar from the demonstrators in the Place de la Concorde. Hart stared at the window, both wanting to look out and not wanting to. Throw in all these financial scandals, continued William, and the fuse if the average French radical has grown mighty short, so much like 1789, 1830, 1848, and 1871, it looks like we're in for a regime change of the most energetic kind. William got up, filled his glass once more, then turned and toasted them sardonically. And here endeth the history lesson. Tom sat down heavily on the bed, staring at the wall. This wallpaper is truly ghastly, he said, then buried his head in his hands. William smiled. Say, that's just what Oscar Wilde said. He was on his deathbed in a Paris hotel, I think, and he's looking at the ugly wallpaper, and he just says, God, one of us has to go, and dies. Funny bastard. Getting no response from Tom, he turned to Hart, jerking his thumb towards the bed. Say, what's eating this one? He's had a long day. Well, grinned William, you'd better down a quarter two of coffee, because it's going to be a long, memorable night. Would you mind if we tagged along with you? Asked Hart, glancing at the window as another groaning cheer washed up against the glass. William smiled. Of course not. Just stop insulting me. Excuse me? I've absorbed some of the habits of the French. Who do you think you're fooling? If you're reporters, I'm Marie Antoinette. And... Little known fact, she actually said, let them eat brioche, which is much funnier because it's more expensive than bread. Tom? asked Hart. Tom looked up. His eyes were ghastly. What about the reporter thing? prompted Hart. We're not reporters, said Tom. Well, thanks, laughed William. First, you're emotionally involved. Actually, you have emotions. Second, you'd never come to cover France knowing shit all about its history. You'd never let me give you a lesson. Reporters aren't conscientious. They just hate to be anything less than a know-it-all. We'd have jousted about obscure facts. <laughs> so, what's your story? Tom gazed at him for a moment. He was not immune to vanity, but he had no real desire to impress William. Do you think there will be a war? 
William stared at him for a moment. Beyond their little room the crowd seemed to be screaming with one voice. Some aspect of William's world-weary persona bled from his face, and he looked naked and frightened for a moment. After tonight, he said, glancing at the window, ask me if I think it is something which is still coming. None of the young men wanted to leave the room. Hart thought this strange. Shouldn't William be chomping at the bit for the story of the possible revolution? Tom held William's gaze. What do you think is wrong with the world? He asked. William blinked. The world? No, just your screwy continent. Your politicians are overstepping the line. It's all grey. Take from the till, sure, but let the store make money. French politicians used to be experts at riding that grey line. They did well for themselves, but the people did well by them. Social contract. But sometime over the past few years, they just went nuts. They didn't just have their hands in the till. They crawled all the way in. Not bad, not bad. He smiled and took a little pad from his breast pocket and jotted the phrase down. Maybe he had and closed it behind them. Nah, too labored. He looked up. See, a democracy is all about balance. Special interests, individual interests. Corruption, good governing, short-term gains, long-term gains. Do the right thing, get back into office, argue on principles, smear your opponents. all a game. It's like health. Everything has to work together. <laughs> Sorry, I'm terrible for writing out loud. Some sort of unholy greed took the ministers over, and to let this swindler, this Stavisky, run riot right in the middle of them was madness. They're advertising their corruption then, rubbing people's noses in it. And in democracy, trust is everything. People have to trust their leaders. If your leaders are scum, why limit yourselves? Why pay your taxes? Why obey? So they can get rich? Nothing makes people more angry than the feeling that their virtues are serving the vices of their rulers. You misbehave, they say, then we misbehave. It's not enough, murmured Tom, staring at the floor. William bristled for a moment, but then realized that Tom was not disparaging his analysis. What's missing, then, for you? he asked, taking a seat again. Hart sat as well on the other bed. Something very intense seemed to be compressing the air in the room. The oxygen seemed to be concentrated, or a hidden ether had arrived which fed new thoughts. Well, said Tom, in England we've had it as bad as anywhere else. It's worse in England and America than here, but we're not tossing out all of our institutions. We throw out our parties, not the party system itself. William nodded, but that's because you are more conservative. But why? Well, that's history, shrugged the reporter. It's like asking why is a man the way he is. That doesn't matter. The question is, what is he? Tom shook his head slowly, but did not answer. There was a pause, then, which is most unusual among new acquaintances. Finally, Hart jumped up. Look, I have to get something to eat, he said. I'm not dissipated enough to live on scotch alone. William grunted, glancing at his watch. They heard the sound of breaking glass beyond the window. Six-thirty. All right. Let's open the door and see the sights. When they opened the door and stepped onto the hotel's communal balcony, overlooking the Place de la Concorde, even William's jaw dropped. About twenty or so men and women stood rigid against the railing of the hotel balcony, gazing at the scene of slaughter and mayhem below. 
It was a kind of madness which Tom had never seen, not even in Germany. Several thousand demonstrators churned back and forth. A bus turned on its side, burned by the obelisk. From the far end of the Place de la Concorde, the steel-helmeted cavalry of the Garde Mobile charged at the crowd, attempting to drive them back. They saw slashing sticks with flashing blades. They love those things, muttered William, scribbling in his notebook. Sticks with straight razors lashed to the end. They go for the tendons of the horses and legs of the policemen. They throw marbles and firecrackers, too, at the hooves of the horses. One horse went down. Its piercing shriek cut straight through the general shouting. The helmet of the guard burst up through the crowd like a straining silver fish. His arms flailed. Then he sank down into the churning sea of dark hats and caps. Will they kill him? asked Hart. William shrugged, then shook his head. Tom could see that he was vaguely disappointed to answer in the negative. Nah, they don't hate the policemen. They just want to get to the Chamber of Deputies. The communists have published a list of politicians they have found guilty and plan to round them up and have public executions tonight. The sabres of the guards rose and fell in the crowd. It was like watching demonic farmers harvesting human flesh. The communists and the fascists mingled and fought as one, hacking at the legs of the dark riders. Tom could not help but smile, remembering the pairing of the two supposed enemies in the transportation strike in Berlin the previous year. Don't the French communists remember what happened to their German brethren when the fascists got in, slaughtered, one and all? But for now they had a common enemy. On the east side of the enormous square, a bulging crowd stood on the Tuileries, which had a slight elevation, and pelted the guards with stones, bricks, wooden chairs, and iron railings they had torn up from somewhere. Tom wondered what a hurled brick felt like landing on your head, even with the protection of a steel helmet. Probably do more harm to the neck. William turned back from a young woman who was standing next to him and said, They've been given orders not to fire. The guards are going to lose. This is it, boys. History, as it happens. I can't believe we jawed for so long in there. I thought this was just another riot. There were five in January. Anyway. He turned back to the woman. Tom glanced over, and the woman seemed to throw her head back in surprise. Her arms flew wide, and she slumped back against the wall. What the fuck? asked William. He knelt down quickly, feeling her wrist. Her grey eyes were wide and staring. Blood ran down her face from a small bullet hole in her forehead. Hart backed away from the railing, scanning the square. No, 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 he said. Not right, not right. Get inside, shouted William, looking up from the woman's staring face. The other men and women were all scattering back to their rooms. They said nothing. No one seemed to know the dead woman. Hart jerked the balcony door open and vanished into the room. "'Wait!' cried William. "'Tom, help me get her inside!' "'She's dead.' "'Of course she's dead! You don't walk away from that! Help me!' William lifted the woman's body off his chest. Her head lolled against his jacket in a sickening manner. Tom picked up her legs. The calf muscles rolled horribly under his palms. "'Hart!' he shouted, backing up against the door. "'Open up!' There was no reply. Tom and William ducked involuntarily as they heard a shot. That's the first one I've heard, said William inconsequentially. 
Heart! screamed Tom. God damn it! He dropped one of the woman's legs and groped behind him for the door handle. Opening it, he reached up her thigh and wrestled her fallen leg back under his armpit. Hart was in the bathroom, vomiting. They lay the dead woman down on the bed, and Tom wondered for a brief moment whether the hotel would charge them for the cleaning of the bedspread, and the carpet, and the pillows, and anything I touch now. Tom pushed the door of the bathroom open a little. The light was very bright. Hart, are you all right? From his position over the toilet, Hart waved his hand backwards. He was seized by another vomiting jag. I'm going down to see what's going on, said William, with only a touch of false bravado in his voice. I'll come, said Tom, then wondered why on earth he would. I have a death wish because war is coming. Hart, he asked. I don't know, groaned Hart. We've left the woman on the bed. Can you tell the front desk? Hart jumped up. He wiped his mouth and spat in the sink. I'm not staying here, then. Outside the hotel, everything was dark. The streetlights had all been pelted or shot out. Shots were still being fired, both from the guards and the mob. The three young men were quickly separated. The churning mass of bodies cast Tom along, and within a few minutes he was on the bridge over the Seine, being inexorably thrust towards a police barricade. He could see the Parliament buildings beyond the barricade and thought of two things simultaneously. First, Les Miserables. Second, that this seemed to be about the last barrier between the mob and the Parliament. He wondered if the deputies were still inside. They would have to be mad, he thought. And then, why don't they say that the politicians are all long gone? Then, almost at the same time, because no one here would believe them. If they can't get their hands on the politicians, they'll burn down the buildings. Then, as the crowd surged forward, their hands outstretched, Why am I always at the front of these goddamn things? He heard some explosions. Men to the left and right of him went down. Two policemen also fell. Some stone chips flying up from a bullet striking the bridge wall flew into his forehead. Tom knelt down, feeling his eyes. It was too dark to see properly to know if his eyes had been damaged. A foot trod on his back agonizingly. Tom jumped up, pushing at the flowing crowds madly in a complete panic. You are a government of assassins! screamed a man, holding the body of another man in his arms, trying to drag him away from the mob. Why don't they turn around? Tom thought, scrabbling at the bodies, compressing him. But the bullets of the police only seemed to spur them on. Every piece of flesh Tom touched was nothing but rigid muscle. He made it to the stone wall. The crowd pressed against him, and he was crushed against it. He tried rolling with the movement of the crowd, but it did no good. He was being ground against the wall. All his extruding bones were slammed and turned against the stone, he cried out in agony as the wall seemed to tear half his left cheek off. If I had a gun at this moment, I would make some fucking room. In his extremity, Tom almost did not hear the changing sounds of the crowd. The howling vengeance which seemed to split the night air suddenly changed to bleating cries of terror. The unstoppable movement stopped, then began flowing backwards. It was like a tide turning all at once. Tom 
could see the vague shapes of men on horseback slashing at the crowd, and his heart leapt despite his physical agony. The Republic is defending itself. These fresh guards, and Tom could see that they were new because they moved with decisive energy and resolution, were turning the tide. They did not use guns but the flats of their sabres, and there were hundreds of them. Tom gave up trying to fight the crowd. Feeling close to tears, he just rolled up in a ball and pressed his elbows into the side of his face. In only a few minutes he was jabbed, roughly. He lifted an elbow and looked up. An exhausted-looking soldier was staring down at him. The man demanded something of him in French. Tom stood up, holding his hands wide. The soldier grabbed his shoulder, spun him around, and thrust him towards the barricades. Tom walked along for a few minutes, his hands over his head. He did not think that the soldier was following him. The barricade was a mess. Soldiers lay in groaning heaps. Orderlies were rushing back and forth with stretchers, carrying them away towards the parliamentary buildings. Dazed, Tom followed them. Inside the building, by the chamber, the wounded lay in a corridor. Two doctors and half a dozen well-dressed women, the wives of the deputies, Tom wondered, tended to the wounded. Tom stepped over them, towards a grand door. He could hear shouting coming from beyond it. It was not the baying of a living, mindless mob, but a more civilized, strained, and helpless sound. Tom knew it well. He recalled it from Berlin. It was the shouting of Parliament. The large doors were locked, but Tom went up some ornate stairs and found a viewing balcony. In the huge chamber, men screamed at each other, their faces red and distorted. They gesticulated in that mad, highly offensive French manner. Piecing together the few words he knew, Tom could tell that the debate was far from civilized. The words for mother and shit flew furiously. They were also not above a melee. A short, bullish man was at the central podium trying to raise his voice above the general shouting. As he waved a piece of paper, a man ran forward and tried to wrestle him down. The bullish man threw him back with ease. His assailant circled him with burning, beady eyes. The speaker paid him no heed, but continued to shout at the assembly, which continued to shout at each other. Tom's various aches and pains began to clamor for attention. He touched his left cheek gingerly. His fingers had been scraped numb against the wall, but he could feel bits of rock still embedded in his skin. His coccyx, what Catherine had always called the monkey bone, felt as if it had been hit on the end with a sledgehammer. Both elbows ached abominably. His lower spine throbbed with the kind of sharp, deep-down pain which only the spine can produce. One of his little toes had been mashed at some point as well. He was afraid to take his shoe off. As the shouting in the great chamber rose more and more hysterically, Tom closed his eyes and leaned back, gasping at the pain in his spine. All his muscles went limp. I want to live on a desert island, he thought, because I cannot understand the passions of my species. Why is everyone so angry? How can they be so sure of all their causes? How can they kill for their beliefs? Does not the existence of other beliefs give them pause? 
Why can they never speak to one another? Why can they never sit down and reason together? Why does only one of them always have to survive? Why is it kill or be killed? Why did Klaus become a fucking Nazi? These questions were self-pitying in a way. Tom knew that. He was not always so rational. He did not survey this struggle from some great moral height, but he had to ask the questions, although they hung lead on every hook of his soul because he was full of despair and was seized by the sudden desire to hurl a bomb at the squalling black-suited crew shrieking below him. You stupid bastards, he thought, rolling his head from side to side, trying to escape the agony of his face. You are given the greatest trust of all, the trust of leadership, greater than parenting, and you descend into petty greed and self-importance and vain posturing and milk evil from your words and feast on those placed in your care. A phrase popped into his mind as his black thoughts mounted. Something about the British Parliament, something about how never under one roof were gathered so many incompetent men who could scarcely earn six hundred pounds a year by any other means. A terrible thought ran through him then, and that was that his leaders were not intelligent. It hit him full force and seemed inescapable. The people I have put in charge of my life are less intelligent than myself. It was a horrible thought, and Tom wished he could eject it from his mind, eject the thought, and return to the moment that preceded it, and never to have had the thought itself. It was, of course, the thought of the mob beyond these walls, where vain fools fought with words under hanging velvet. Another thought came to him then, which was, why did these people want power? He recalled something from Plato, something about how no man who wants power should ever be allowed to exercise it. Where would these men be if there were no government? He knew a little about Hitler's early years. He had never been able to hold down a job. He was always broke, painted and sold postcards lived in doss houses, down with the empty driftwood of humanity among those who left no wake in their passage through the world. And a thought began to tickle at him. Hitler is not insane. He is evil, but that is not enough. He is... He is cunning, cunning. Hitler has created a world where he is king. In the world that came before him, he was nothing. Now he is everything. Tom opened his eyes and leaned forward. The bitter ravings of the French politicians in the great hall seemed different to him. Their sweeping arms, grand gestures, and flying spittle seemed to him like the struggles of single-celled organisms under a microscope. They each want a world where only one of them can survive. At this moment, each of them is nothing. They have no power because their disputes are irreconcilable and they are evenly matched. They are a paralysis of opposites. But should one of them surmount all the others, then all power will be theirs. They are blocked and only the sword of absolutism can thrust through. This is the death throw of a society which has utterly lost the capacity to negotiate. 
of a society without reason, common cause, or higher values. A society of striking animals. Humanity has lost. Now only brute nature rules. A kind of calm swept over him then, and for the first time in months he felt the fear of war lift away from him. He took a deep breath. Nothing is terrifying when it is understood. It was the thought that inexplicable devils had been let loose in the world, that democracies were falling without rhyme, reason, or predictability, and that humanity was being dragged off a cliff by ghosts or invisible monsters that had most frightened Tom. And of course there is no real mystery in my brother. He suddenly felt that Reginald was sitting beside him, gesturing sardonically at the raging debris of the French Parliament, as if to say, what can we expect from the common fools of the species? Reginald was a conformist. Tom's frown deepened, his scalp ached. My brother is hard to understand because he has no form. He is a clear container for every fashionable notion. He seeks to control others through pleasing them, except that he has never sought to control me. But that is because I am a younger sibling and have no power to offer him, no goodies to bestow. He cannot negotiate because he has no values higher than his own ambition. He can please and flatter and bully, intimidate and twist words. He cannot stand for anything. He is a monster without form, as all monsters are. He is what he is, and I must send heart to him. Tom stood up slowly, painfully, turned on his heel, and left the warring chamber without a second glance. Nineteen thirty-five, Mussolini and Abyssinia. Reginald lowered his head on his desk. It would be so lovely, he thought, to lie here and just evaporate into nothing. In thirty seconds I will get up. Uh, all right, thirty more. He struggled to stay awake. My head feels as if it has been stuffed with some sort of strange saliva. It clouds my sight and conducts thoughts not. It was August 1935. His second daughter had been born one month previously. He would be happy to never go home again. It wasn't that they didn't have the room or the help they did. In May they had moved to a fairly nice house in Croydon. He took the train into work with the other shuffling dawn zombies. He read the paper. His head fell down. He dribbled on his suit. He woke up like he was being shot out of the depths of the ocean straight into the stratosphere. He was being killed, though. Slowly killed. It wasn't pretty. He had two enemies. Well, three. The first was his second daughter, Christina. Though he didn't blame Christina so much. It was more 
Jocelyn's fault. Jocelyn, who had entered their lives with great calm and staring eyes, who cooed and burbled and slept through the night and didn't raise much of a fuss when she had to stay in her crib. Like me, when I was a child, by all reports. Jocelyn seduced them into having Christina, and Christina was a spawn of the devil. For Christina, there was no point drawing breath except to howl. She seemed to sleep in 15-second increments every 30 seconds. She was terrified of the vacuum cleaner. She didn't like it when the water heater started. Her startled response seemed to be activated by daybreak. She clung and howled right into your ear and wouldn't let go when she was put down. Getting out of her room was like planning a jailbreak. Reginald hated even going in. It's doubtful that he would have, too, except for the implacable resolve of his second enemy. Ah, the little wife. Reginald didn't even bother her anymore. Wendy didn't like him. She found any excuse to humiliate him. She criticized the house, his income, his sperm. It took her four months to get pregnant, and all the time she complained loudly that he was shooting blanks. He liked the idea of having a gun, though. His height? Oh, get a ladder, Reg! His parenting skills, when Jocelyn went through a biting phase, Wendy said, She just wants some attention, Reg. His family? Nice lot. The Nazi-sympathizing father, the bedridden mother, and perpetually absent young stud. His job? So, basically, you'd lie for a living. Ah, well, like father, like son. His penis? Is it in yet? His physique? My God, Reg, do some press-ups before you become truly two-dimensional. And all this was uttered in the tone of such rank and persistent humor that he turned positively pale with the effort of keeping his hands folded in his lap. He had tried over the past year. They had had one terrific row. It was impossible to remember over what, of course. And she had completely frozen him out for two months. I want to hear nothing out of you except an apology, was her only phrase. She would take Jocelyn out of his hands without saying a word. It was quite gruesome. After six weeks, Reginald really began to panic. This wall of ice was too much. It made him feel less than invisible, incorporeal. A panic of vanishing, he thought. Not vanished, not gone, vanishing in the process of. He went to his father. Not lunch at the club, too many distractions, a drive. To see some wandering constituent organization. More than happy to drive you, Dad. Reginald waited until they were outside of the city before speaking. So, Wendy and I had a crackerjack toss-up, apologize said Quentin instantly. What? Don't get into the details. Not with me. Not with her. Apologize. She never accepts my apologies, Father. Sure, you're young. You have to have props. I can get away with it. I've had 25 years of practice. You need flowers, reservations, something sweet. Write a poem. It's easy. Lots of words rhyme with sorry. But Quentin held up his hand. You want to talk about the rights... And wrong doesn't apply, son. Don't bother. Women can nurse a grudge until it grows a beard. Look at your mother, of course, but saying it out loud would be disrespectful. 
So it doesn't matter. Just apologize. Women have no power, Quentin laughed. <laughs> Come on, you run the foreign office. I've talked to Cuthbert almost, anyway. You control the destiny of a nation. She's got a maid and a cook. Be generous, you selfish sod. But she'll take it as a sign, protested Reginald. Of what? My weakness. Quentin laughed out loud. <laughs> Your weakness? <laughs> to a woman? Come on. If a boy scout picks on a prize fighter, the fighter backs down because it would be unfair. Be generous. I have to tell you, Father, I hate it. I really hate it. Sure, sure, we all do. It's the price of having a woman in the bedroom. To use your balls, you have to give them up. Reginald was silent. All right, so that was my annual outburst of coarseness, grunted Quentin. Don't be so shocked. Why didn't you warn me about marriage? demanded Reginald petulantly. Christ! growled Quentin. Anything you didn't learn from seeing me and your mother can't be taught. Reginald scowled. There had to be a way out. His shoulders rose, then fell. So, what? How do you apologize? Quentin did not hesitate. You pretend that you're teaching her how to apologize to you. It's the only way to make it real. So, you watch the road, Reg. You'd love for her to apologize to you, right? Right. So do what I do. I imagine that your mother has just said to me, Quentin, my beloved, what's the best way for me to apologize to you? What would work for you the best? And then I lean forward, rub your eyes hard beforehand so they seem red, and say, Sweetheart, I am so sorry from the bottom of my heart for all the upset I have caused you. Feel like you're apologizing to your own heart for all the trials you have put it through by marrying such a woman. <laughs> you might even pull a tongue and really cry. It happened to me. Twice. Reginald's eyes were wide. Then he leaned forward and barked out a laugh. Christ, Dad, did you learn that in politics? No, son. I'm good in politics because I learned that beforehand. All right. Reginald took his hands off the wheel and rubbed his eyes violently. No, not now, said his father. You're going to mess around with this. Pull over. Reginald parked the car by the side of the road, in a strip of wet grass by a hedge. The final stop of the brakes made them both lurch. Now, rub your eyes. More. Now, imagine that I have done you some great wrong, and now forget that. I've been the perfect father. Imagine that I am Wendy, and I say... How should I apologize to you, Reginald? Reginald frowned. Uh, you should say... You should say... All right, steady on. You can't say that part out loud. Reginald took a deep breath. You should be sorry. You should... His head jerked back violently. He took a series of shallow breaths. I, I don't want to... He said in a small voice. It's all right, said Quentin. He reached forward, his overcoat rustling loudly, and touched Reginald's arm. Say it, son. You should be sorry, cried Reginald. His face distorted wildly. His eyes were wide, his cheeks were red. He burst into tears. I am so sorry. So sorry for everything I have just lost. All right, said Quentin, uneasily glancing around. It would be a very poor show to be discovered just now. 
Reginald sobbed. He gripped the wheel and threw his head forward. The horn sounded loudly. Quentin's heart jumped. Reginald, he said, fear rising in his chest. For God's sake, man, get a grip. Oh, God, shouted Reginald. You should be sorry. We are all so fucking sorry. Then, just as Quentin was really beginning to panic, picturing driving his raving son back to London to a sanatorium, all the emotion seemed to drain out of his son. Reginald's eyes cleared. He coughed a little. He wiped his cheeks and stared at his wet palms. "'Sorry, father,' he said evenly. "'That's just strange. Pay it no mind. Stress.' "'Yes,' said Quentin wearily. "'I had no idea,' smiled Reginald, "'that I had such a capacity for drama and self-pity <laughs> such an old woman. "'Look, we should—no, no, it's, it's all right. I, I can drive.' Reginald started the car and drove back onto the road. Quentin remained pressed up against the passenger door. They drove— for a few minutes, then Reginald laughed. <laughs> you know, he said, Wendy is always at me to share my feelings. I should. I really should. I think she would enjoy that. There was one final enemy in Reginald's world that summer of 1935. He could avoid his youngest daughter. He could alarm his wife with emotional outbursts. He could... However, do nothing whatsoever about Mussolini. Everything I have inherited is rotten, he thought, still unable to lift his head from his desk. He could feel the fibers of the paper seeping into the pores of his skin. The League of Nations had been created in 1919 by 32 countries to promote negotiation instead of war. If a League member was attacked by another member, the League would come to its assistance. There were three levels of League response, a polite warning, economic sanctions, and military intervention. In 1931, Japan had invaded Manchuria. China had appealed to the League for help against Japan. After a long delay, the League finally passed a resolution against Japan and demanded that it leave Manchuria. Instead, Japan left the League. Japan remained in possession of Manchuria, and the League took no action against it. Sanctions were useless without the U.S., which was not in the League. England did not want to get on Japan's bad side, since they were both naval powers, and England needed her navy to protect the empire. France did not want to act alone. This did not bode well for the League. The failure of the League had not been lost on Il Duce, Mussolini had domestic problems. The fabulous wealth promised by fascism was somehow failing to materialize. The population was getting restless. Clearly, it was high time to drag out the corpse of the Roman Empire and run a few vaults through it. Casting his eyes about, Mussolini's beady eyes fell on Abyssinia, one of the last unconquered lands of Africa. Italy had failed to conquer it before in 1896, but, reasoned Mussolini, that was before the technology gap had grown as large as it now was. Abyssinia had men with spears and three obsolete airplanes. Italy could field 100,000 troops, armored tanks, and the latest aircraft. 
So in December 1934, Italian troops attacked a group of British and Abyssinian investigators at the oasis of Walwal in Abyssinia. In January of 1935, Abyssinia asked the League of Nations to arbitrate the looming border dispute with Italy. Mussolini refused to accept the jurisdiction of the League of Nations. This was tricky because Italy was, after all, a founding member. Instead, he made a secret treaty with France. France would let Mussolini have Abyssinia if Mussolini would stand with France against any German aggressions. The Italian army began to mass along the Abyssinian border. The Abyssinian leader, one Haile Selassie, demanded a League meeting. The League, in its wisdom, banned the sale of arms to either side. This well pleased Il Duce because his army was already well equipped, and it barred the Abyssinians from buying any weapons. So now, Reginald was responsible for working with the British representative at the League to further clarify the FO's position regarding the Abyssinian crisis. Reginald rather liked the term Abyssinian crisis because it seemed to indicate that the Abyssinians were responsible for it. It's all so fucking stupid, thought Reginald, closing his eyes more tightly. He didn't want to lift up his head for fear of getting dizzy. He also didn't want to open his eyes because he hated that exhausted sideways view of his own office. The Italians are going to invade Abyssinia and they're going to slaughter them. The League isn't going to lift one ringed finger. All this stupid posturing. Collective security, my fanny. You get one shot to be a credible world voice. They failed in Manchuria. That's it. All done. No point. Mustn't. Sleep. Reginald inhaled sharply, hoping to jumpstart his brain with a strong shot of oxygen. He couldn't get Wendy to understand the Abyssinian crisis. It seemed completely beyond her grasp. She didn't like blackamoors, for one thing. They were related to Spanish men somehow. Why Reginald should spend his evenings fussing over some border conflict in Africa when he could and should be home helping out was utterly beyond her. She waved away all his explanations as vain and self-serving. He just liked having drinks with the boys after work. Reginald could not help but feel the endless rage of the worker bee. He brought home the money, though true the clouds of inheritance rained heavily over them, but what he did to earn it was considered foolish, like some sort of board game, nothing serious, nothing that anyone with half a brain couldn't do. And like all true worker bees, he knew that it was such an explosive issue that it could only be brought up when he was prepared for a fight to the death. If he was prepared to stand naked under the endless hail of her resentments, if he were willing to listen to the phrase, and another thing, at least a hundred times. And he wasn't ready for that. That was a title fight, the title fight, and he had to be ready. Visualization was one thing. He had to run through all possible permutations of the conversation. This thing could not be approached lightly. The worker bee did not assert himself, especially in the face of an ego-bloated queen bee, without sufficient training. Currently, they both controlled their complaints. If he were to uncork his, especially this one, then all restraint would be lost, perhaps never to return. A war is not a war if it remains undeclared. And then, 
he did fall asleep, and had heady, pleasant dreams of Wendy's adventures on a desert island, where she actually had to fend for herself, and had no one to blame, and no one to pander to her, and he loved following her around the island, invisible, giggling, as she raged against the indifferent elements. <laughs>